Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Before he died last year, Premier Kerkoska gave his daughter, Anna, a secret document containing the names of men within his government who privately favored friendly relations with the West. Word has reached us through diplomatic channels that Anna and her brother Alexei wish to defect. We know this is a plot devised by Alexei to acquire the document and at the same time capture American intelligence agents, thereby embarrassing the West. In spite of this trap, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to get the document and bring Anna Kurkowska to safety. As always, should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Tonight, this podcast will self-destruct in five seconds, where we talk Mission Impossible, the Revival series, Space 1999, and as it turns out, the Mission Impossible movie series as well. So, you're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, the show that launched not only a sequel a decade and a half on, but an equally popular movie series two full decades thereafter, the tropes and score of Mission Impossible have been used, referenced, and celebrated throughout popular culture well past any similar series' shelf life. Despite an odd insistence on avoidance of actual characterization or backstory, this unique spy heist series went on to be nominated for and win any number of awards throughout its run, including six to ten Emmy nominations a year for its original Landau Bain incarnation, and one to three Golden Globes for an overlapping five of its seven remaining seasons, no mean feat for a low to middling budgeted, mainly set-bound mid-60s television series. With a rotating cast centered on a few central figures, themselves often rotating in and out of the series over the course of its lengthy run, the series was later followed by not only a surprisingly good late 80s revival series, with a nearly all Australian cast and setting, and despite its partial direct remake of previous series scripts, featuring return appearances from several veterans of its 1966-73 forebear. But further, by two of its leads entering into the pensive hard SF of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's UK-based Space 1999, which married the format of Star Trek with the aesthetic of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, before imploding following a major controversial overhaul in Season 2, that saw most of its core characters, themes, and tropes overturned, betraying nearly everything that made the first season so fascinatingly special. So join us tonight as we discuss the long and winding fuse that ties these three series together, as we talk the good, the bad, and ugly of both series of Mission Impossible and Space 1999. This podcast will self-destruct in five seconds. Mission Impossible and Space 1999. 
So again, you're listening to Ritzes Inside the Goldmine. We're getting near the end of the sixth season. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Yeah, so we're talking Mission Impossible tonight. And obviously there was just, probably by the time you hear this, would be a couple months old, just released the most recent installment of the movie series, MI6 Fallout. Yeah, I hope we get to Space 1999. Um, <laughs> well, I know the last one, uh, Rogue Nation, I kind of talked you into a little bit, a little a little goading there, because you're you're a little resistant. And, you know, it's I, I know, right, totally. We've been over this a couple of times, off air, on air. But you really like that one. Isn't it? And I was glad that you did. I, I always like it when I suggest something and people see it and think, oh, you know, I don't want to hear, like, you were right, but they, I just want to hear, like, you know, that somebody enjoyed it. I, I tried that a lot with Train to Busan, the South Korean picture, but uh, I didn't get too much feedback on that. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's an amazing movie. Anyway, so when this came out, uh, it's only a few weeks old, actually. The reviews were like, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes, you know, I don't live and die by that, but it was like a 98% positive. I'm like, well, that's different. The reviews were very, very positive. So I, I waited like uh, two weeks, maybe two and a half, before I saw it. I was like, you got to see this. And uh, so I suggested it to you. I, I really liked it. I uh, I liked it a lot for some things. It's one of the few films... This is going to be a weird show, because we're talking about the most latest incarnation of this subject here. I like it a lot because it's one of the few films in this genre that actually begins, begins slowly. And, you know, there's like a, a, a minute dream sequence. All right, it's been done a lot, but it wasn't too cheesy. And we have a slow burn. And it's about, I, I, I didn't actually time it, but I have to estimate 15, 20 minutes before the credits start. And like the TV series, the original... During the credits, and I don't think they've done this for about two or three pictures now. During the credits, they show you scenes from the movie, so you got you got to be sharp-eyed to watch this because they, they they flip by really quickly. From the movie, you're going to see, and that's how the TV show used to do it too. Like during the opening credits for each episode, there were like quick shots of the episode you were going to watch. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of that in this. I thought that was a nice, you know, little nod to the show because they haven't done it for a while. I liked it because, uh, you know, Tom Cruise is aging. He's my age now. And, damn, can that guy run? Fuck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's that one. Where was that one scene? He's outdoor. Was it in Paris? It's in Paris, yeah. He's running after Superman so quickly. I was like, fuck you, St. Paul. Who's that guy? I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you got to admit. That wasn't a crank camera. This guy could fucking run. Yeah. And I know you thought the, the ending was a little overkill with, like, the, the copter. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, it, it's... Okay. The movie was really good. I mean, I, as far as these kind of things go. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised by Five, because I was not expecting much being Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise! You know, cocktail and all that shit. Interview the Vampire. Mm. Although he was good there, but even so... And we went in and was like, you know what, this is actually pretty fun. It was around the same time that they had done that reboot movie of, what the hell's the one, the Robert Vaughn series, uh, Man from U.N.C.L.E. And that was right. actually really good, too, in a different That's way. That's really good, yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, so we enjoyed the hell out of both of these movies. But, you know, the, the Mission Impossible was the more serious one. The Man from U.N.C.L.E. was more comedy. But same idea. 
And they're like, okay, you know, will we go see the next one? Will we not? Yeah, I think we will, whatever. And then you had seen it and said, oh, yeah, it's so great. I saw other people said it was great. I'm like, all right, fine, let's just do this. And I was surprised because it actually one-upped the last one. I mean, last time around, it was nice. It was a nice surprise. It was much better. We actually tried to go backwards. We picked up the uh, box set from, like, the library or something and watched from, okay, now we saw five. We watched four. It was like, well, that wasn't half as good as five was, but okay, fine. We tried to watch three. We tried to watch two. I'm like, oh, this is getting worse as we go backwards. <laughs> I really hated that whole shtick about the marriage. I'm like, oh, come on, really? It really just bogged the series down. And, you know, it was like, okay, well, I guess 5 was really kind of a one-off. Let's see what happens here. And it actually improved it. I mean, I liked Simon Pegg being more of a field agent as opposed to just being, you know, the tech guy or whatever in the comedy or whatever. I liked them bringing, I mean, even Baldwin was in on it for a bit. I was like being sort of a half-assed field agent, if you if you want. There's a scene where the, this happens. I liked how they sort of tied some things together and put some of these things to bed, like the whole thing about the marriage, because, you know, she was kind of in hiding, uh, what they call it, like witness protection sort of a thing. So, okay, she's back, but she's out of the picture, too. They finally resolved well, this emotionally. Well, if, if I could interject for a moment, yeah, we, we had done an email about this, and I think, I think they were never divorced. I think she's been in hiding. Mm-hmm. I think she just ne- never got around to divorcing each other. Mm-hmm. That there's, you can see there's great affection between these two people. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that the key for me to that, why I thought that, was when she says, oh, he's my husband. She introduces him to this uh, WHO doctor or, you know, mm-hmm. Doctors Without Frontiers guy. And you can see the look on his face. Yeah. And your husband, you know. And obviously, okay, she moved on and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I kind of got the idea, which is an interesting little you know, thing that 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 Macari. That's why I thought it was pretty much well written. I mean, it's not the best written film of all time, but no. for what it is, it was really well written. Because, and you know, Tom Cruise is really. I thought I thought this movie is one of the the you know. There's a batch of pictures. This is one of them where he's he's really working at it. He's yeah. really working at it. I thought he was. He did a great acting job in this. For what it is, he did a really good superlative job. I, I, I got to applaud the guy. I was like, fuck, you did a good job here. Yeah, and what it is about this one is it feels more Bond than not just, okay, than the series has been feeling, okay, it's the half-assed American take on Bond, mm-hmm. but it actually beat the shit out of, of course, all the Daniel Craig's, because I don't consider them very highly in the first place. But going back to before Die Another Day, which was kind of the the test, let's let's dip our toes in the water is what we're going to do with Craig, but it had Brosnan in it. Going back before that, so we're going all the way back to World is Not Enough, the Bond series has not been the Bond series, really, in that way it's changed that much. Whereas this one felt like, hey, you know, this could be a Bond film going all the way back. Stop the series over there, call that Bond series something else, the Daniel Craig series or something. And mm. from here on out, this is the missing Bond film. It's It was that close to it. And there was a slight thing that like you mentioned before that we were kind of getting to with, after talking about positives, which is that the writing gets a little bit too Hollywood pat. 
they start throwing it. There's a lot of twists and turns in this movie, and it starts getting to be all of a sudden really predictable and really, oh, uh, you know what? It's almost like a cartoon. These people, the way they write stuff. You know, we haven't have put this guy through enough shit left. Uh, let's do another one. Oh, here's another twist and turn. Oh, he's hanging off the side of a mountain. Here comes a helicopter blade that chopped everybody's heads off. Oh wait, just missed him. <laughs> okay, no, that's not enough. Let's throw in an avalanche. Oh wait, no, he got through that one. Now uh, his arm's gonna pop out of his socket, and he's gonna hang. But, toes. I mean, and it keeps going and going. Like, this is really getting stupid, people. You're just trying to like kill time, keep us in our seats, and not let us out of here for another 45 minutes that could have been wrapped up back then. So that felt stupid to me. But yeah, go but, ahead. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that whole thing. I mean, it's like everybody was, uh, which was like, okay, he's got this payload. I, I guess it was supplies. Yeah. And he's gonna drop it on the other copter. I'm like, can you actually go that fucking high? I guess yep. so. He misses it. The well, 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 starts no. going out. Yeah, everybody would have seen it by now, but yes, he misses it. <laughs> and then you're like, okay. And then he fucking rams a copter. Yep. Oh, we, we didn't see that coming because <laughs> we, we haven't seen that before. We're like seeing he's, he's going to fucking go for broke anyway. He's going to ram the copter. The rock climbing thing, though, since you went backwards after you saw this or before you saw this, that comes from two. There's a nod to almost every picture here mm-hmm. in some way, fashion, or form. I, I seem to think you dislike, um, I would say, Angela Bowie. What the fuck is her name? Oh, yeah, yeah, Angela Bassett oh, there, yeah. Angela Bassett. <laughs> well, because I referred to her as Angela Bassett Hound. Because we, we had said, like, you know, one thing that was nice about this one was there was really no ugly people in it. You know, the, the guys, I'm, I can't really speak for that, but they seemed okay to me. I don't know. But the women were all attractive, even like the French cop that's only in there for like, you know, two minutes of the movie. Yeah. Like, okay, who is that? Looking. I don't know. I was, yeah, we got to oh, who's that? Yeah. Everybody was good looking, except maybe, and I said, that, that was my caveat. Well, well except Angel Bassett Hound, because, you know, she's a scary old woman, but nonetheless. Well, you wouldn't do her? Uh, not with credit. Not with yours. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, she gives the the impression of like uh, what team she goes for. I don't think yeah, you or I could possibly. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but it's funny because I thought, see, I didn't think it was as transparent maybe as you did. But hey, you know, I have the beholder and all that. Well, remember, I had thought that she you were surprised. Pick. You were surprised by the villain, and I was no, like, no, 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 don't, no. I wasn't entirely surprised. I was like, oh. It's him. Uh, yeah, because I picked him really early on. My God, geez, he's going to be the villain. Sure enough. <laughs> you know what I was surprised about? Uh, what I was surprised about, so I, I went with two friends, and they said, we didn't see the last few. Can you get us up to speed as we're in the car going? Mm-hmm. Okay, blah, blah, blah. And I'm pretty good at it. I said, but guys, I cannot for the life of me remember this villain, except they were called the Syndicate, and I can't remember this guy specifically. Um, because he didn't make that much of an impression on me. Right. So, what I thought was really interesting about this movie, ben, uh, Angela Bassett, <laughs> uh, was that, so, you know, uh, Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, has to, it's getting a little complicated. So, you know, that they manage to tie all the shit together, I get him kudos for that, has to be somebody else. Maybe he's not somebody else. Maybe somebody else is somebody else. So, in order to get something done here, he has to spring this fucking evil guy. So here's the thing. This guy was in the last picture, and he really made not much of an impression on me. I didn't remember and I thought he was there. like, 
<laughs> when you just said that, like he exactly. was. <laughs> exactly. So he was like generic, generic dude. And then at the end of this picture, he becomes a psycho fucking villain. Yes. Not only he nearly beats the death the um, our favorite British spy check. Uh, he nearly beats Simon Pegg to death and hangs the fuck. I mean, this guy suddenly has that kind of psycho power of you know, of a villain that we rarely see in these kind of movies. You know, it's like he's the last guy we would expect to exhibit this kind of energy. Yep. And it came out of nowhere, and I was like, holy fuck. And, and that, there's another thing I like. They actually did a cheap homage to the TV series, beyond the ones you had mentioned, where they had a whole setup pretty early on. And I was like, oh, look, they just gave in to his demands kind of thing or whatever, so that he gets information out of him. And then, poof, down come all the walls, and it was a cheap set. And even oh, uh, wasn't that Wolf great? Blitzer, yeah. friggin' Wolf Blitzer does a cameo in this thing. It, it was like, wow, And because he peels off his face and it's Benji. I'm like, wow, this is great. <laughs> it's great, yeah, it was great. I was like, I was going with it, too. I was yeah. like, holy shit, really? They bombed the Vatican? They bombed Paris? Fuck. <laughs> No, because you probably thought about that, right? Come mm-hmm. on, for a second. Mm-hmm. You were like, oh, shit. I thought that was real. And yeah. Then just like the TV series, I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, I was like, hey, nice. Okay, let's go Let's go to the TV series. So, right. um, you know, I don't have anything specific written up on us because this is a long series. We actually got that set that looks like a case of dynamite. <laughs> we had Blow watched up. this over like a year, year and a half going through because there's seven seasons. And then there was two seasons in Australia, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. A lot of people rotating in and out. But I didn't go back and make those specific episodes. But over Overall, I can tell you that the original series, as in series one, the guys that you have in there was a fellow named Stephen Hill, who was the original, what became Peter Graves' character. He kind of runs the IMF. Right, Dan Briggs. Yeah. Basically, the problem was, I mean, I didn't mind him at all. I thought he was decent. He sort of, I mean, okay, yeah, he was more of a behind-the-desk guy, but he did get involved in missions. He would show up at least towards the end for the mop-up operations, and sometimes he actually did things. But apparently, they had to get rid of him from the show because he was Orthodox Jewish, which means that, you know, okay, so what? The problem is that when you hit sundown on Friday night, that's it. Yeah, Friday night to Saturday night, they they can't do a damn thing. They're home, and they're not supposed to be messing with electronics, nothing. they got to walk places. So uh, one of these episodes over like things had to happen and he's like okay i'm gone I'm like what are you talking about you're gone we need you for whatever scenes i don't know if they need him for the next morning for it just ran into friday evening but he's like nope can't do it and i guess after this happened you know more than once they're like okay i guess we're gonna have to replace you what started happening towards the end you'll notice he had less and less going on he became more of the behind the desk guy but nonetheless it was like okay we gotta do something about this so he kind of disappeared after this series i understand he showed up again in yentl of all things you know streisand I, I i saw him in a few other things too i mean you know of course the guy's not working as much so he, he you know when you don't see someone in the eye they look very much aged but yeah I was still, it was still him. I saw him in a few other things. Uh, maybe one of these ridiculous things. I don't keep in contact with too much. SVU or whatever the fuck it was. Yeah, he was like a Law and Order or something for a yeah, while. Yeah, Law and Order, yes. Sorry, Law and Order. That was one of them. Yeah. Oh, and supposedly the impetus, I don't know how true this is, he didn't want to do some minor stunt. Like, you know, they went to the rafters or something. And, yeah, he refused to do it. So I guess that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. So he was only there for one season, which, you know, might not mean anything because a lot of series go on without certain characters being in them. But, but but I you know I enjoyed him. It yeah. was oh I guess we didn't do the 
things saying, well, why did Mission Impossible star? It's the fall of 66 Bond movies. Things like Honey West, hope, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, It Takes a Thief, I yes. Spy. You know, American television versions of, what else? The Bond movies. Right. Things we covered much, much, much often in the past. But this was different. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that were different about it. One thing being, like I had mentioned earlier, there was sort of a, a series Bible that said, you know what, we're not going to get into characterization. We don't know anything about these people and their outside lives. We yes. don't have a lot of information on them, even within the show episodes. You know, they interact, they're working on the same team, but there's a lot of silence. If you watch it, it's a strangely quiet show. A lot of close-ups of people doing elaborate, anything from breaking open a safe to doing some kind of building an electronic gadget, or hiding under a table and rigging it up, or, you know, climbing down a roof to get into a closet. Yeah, so they can, you know, exactly. Yeah. They didn't get into things you just mentioned. It's about season three or four. When they decide to subtly elaborate. Because somewhat. Yeah. Somewhat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some people say that the series felt a little bit ritualistic in the sense that every episode had some of the same elements in it. Not just what we were talking about there, but the opening sequence. Okay, you had the thing where they showed you bits and pieces of the episode that come all chopped out of order and make it look exciting and crazy. And some of them were the high points, so you couldn't actually have spoilers right in the beginning, unless people were obsessed with that. But there was things like, okay, you've got the fuse lit, and then the music starts to... Yeah, but that's that's good shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, Lalo Schiffer. That's among among his best throwaway stuff, man. Wow. What would happen is the guy, originally it was Dan Hill, and later on it's Peter Graves, ends up going somewhere. In the beginning, it was more played up. Later on, it kind of disappeared for a bit. Uh, They started reusing things. It got a little bit more work-a-day towards the end, which I wasn't too happy about. But early on, it was strange things. Like, like even in the last, I think it was MI5, where he goes to the record shop and plays, you know, asks for a specific jazz record or something and goes in the back of the listening room and all of a sudden there comes the mysterious tape or whatever he needs to hear. And that's what it is. Somehow, whatever it is, like going to a piano recital, going out to the observatory. Up. Yeah, yeah, let me throw myself in here. That was another nice thing of Fallout. That, we haven't had that in a while in the series. Is that in the beginning, you know, when Tom Cruise gets his package... And it's got this was self-destruct. We haven't seen that in a long time, too. Another nice nod to the series. Yeah, because in 5, I think the problem was the room got gassed, and he got attacked right away. <laughs> so, he got attacked right away, yes. Right. So here yeah. you actually get to see the old, not the tape, but you know the same idea. And that's what happens. You know, wait, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Your mission should you choose to accept it. And then they start rattling stuff off, and then the tape starts to smoke. Actually, when you got into the 80s series, they would freeze frame it on the tape smoking, which is cheesy. But in the early series, you would actually watch it you know, burn up, and he would walk away. And then after that, okay, you figure, okay, that's enough of an intro. You already got this whole thing with the credit sequence. You already right. got him getting the tape and hearing the mission. Nope, now they've got to go back to a lonely old apartment filmed in you know high overhead, kind of like Hitchcock would do. Isn't uh, that sad? Yeah. That was so it was sad. Weird. That was so sad. It, it had a weird atmosphere. Because when Hitchcock used that high-angle shot, it's supposed to show you how small the characters are. There's something bigger going on oppressing them. And here it is used every single friggin' episode, this high overhead shot inside this apartment. It was a nice apartment where he's going and picking out photographs. And like, okay, looks through this dossier. I don't don't like this one. I don't like that one. If they had guest stars in an episode, which they did a lot in the early days, they might say something underneath like, expert dentist. I mean, they had one guy in there that was like a lawyer one time or something stupid. And that was a specialty. Uh, And often done to a Marshall drumbeat. Remember that? Yes, that is true. Yeah. Uh, I was like, what? 
all the way okay. up through these damn photos, but it later on became kind of a joke because they wouldn't have so many guest stars. So it would just be the same three to five people that you saw yeah. every freaking... Yeah. And my wife actually laughs like, gee, I wonder if they'll pick Peter Lupus. I mean, you know, he's going to throw him out. You know, after that, then the credits would roll and then they would come back and he would debrief the team in the same place and then you got on with the business of the episode, which usually right. involved switching to the minor characters that were specific to that story and then, okay, then they get involved in whatever it was. And then at the end, you would usually have, again, kind of became a joke, oh, I wonder if they're going to go away and laugh after all these people die or go to jail or have their lives <laughs> fucked up. And they do at the end. They've always got to drive away in a truck and then you see them like kind of like kick their heads in the air and they're like, ah, they got a big old smile or a laugh. Maybe there's a cheap joke. <laughs> to a Marshall Drumby outro. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes. End credit. Freeze frame credit credit. It's like, what the hell? They're happy about that? All right, whatever. I guess they accomplished the mission. <laughs> okay, so so now we, we, should, we should mention the, the supporting cast. Yes. Uh, Stephen well, Hill, Error Onward. Barbara yeah. Bain, your favorite? Actually, what I was going to throw in right there, because we went from Stephen Hill, afterwards, the guy that's there for the entire series, really, not just the next two to seven, but into the 80s series, is Peter Graves, who yes. is just kind of funny nowadays because he's known as friggin' biography. Oh, Winston Churchill was born in whatever the hell. <laughs> but, you know, he comes in there with his white hair from God knows he must have had it when he was 12. All kind of Midwestern, almost like a cowboy type. And if, if this was the earlier 60s or late 50s, he would have been in all these Westerns and shit. As it is, here he is, he's in Mission Impossible. Not the world's greatest actor, not the world's most emotive. He's kind of like a less comedy-centric Leslie Nielsen. Supposedly, though, this is interesting, I discovered he's much of a Bible thumper as Stephen Hill was Orthodox Jewish. But I guess it didn't cause him problems like you did with him. Well, the thing is, Graves, and, and, and speaking upon what you just said, they did try over the course of the, the mid to later years actually give him some episodes to do more the, moment, the episode with Joan Collins, or the yes. episodes, uh, they tried it to actually give him some subtext. They actually tried to give his character some things going on there, and the, the interactions with members of his team. So I, I, I do have to give them credit for trying to work with him. How do we put this? I, I want to put this kindly, because I don't want to put this unkindly. I always like the guy. You oh, know. Yeah. I think that realizing limitations that the producers at some point, and maybe even himself, they tried to do things with him later on. Mid-period, yes. let's say season four onward, they really tried to do things for him and with him that were trying to give him more heft, you know, give his character more heft. So, you know, even if they didn't repeat that later on when they started adding uh, cacophony of weirdos. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. that. It's like, you know, all right, all right. So, and when they brought him back in the 80s, and I, I, I don't want to jump the gun because we're going to discuss that in a little while. Okay, he's a much more aged oh, Peter yeah. Graves. And the funny thing was, I don't know if you recall this, but I did. I do. When they brought him back, he was supposed to be like, remember when they brought the Avengers back to the Canadian co-produced TV yes. series? And Patrick McNee was supposed to play John Steed on the outer, the outer level, you know, like, yep. and then they realized, wow. He's such a strong character. He's got to be in every episode. Right. And that's what happened here. When they brought this back, Peter Graves was supposed to be on the outer. You know, he's much older now. You know, God bless him. But it's like, no, i got to bring this guy in because <laughs> it doesn't work without him. Right. 
Yeah, and, he, he may not be the world's greatest actor, but he does have force of person. I want to say force of personality, just like a persona stands out. Like the series kind of revolves around him in a way that maybe it wasn't intended to. He's very upfront and in your face in a certain way, while being laid back and you know, like I say, a little bit stiff. So yeah, I could definitely see why that would happen. <laughs> Barbara Bain. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, and by the way, I should also mention about Peter Graves. He did appear in some westerns. I don't know that they were before. I know he was in Five Man Army for one. He was in a couple of war movies. Which is really fun. Which is really fun. And then he showed up in Clonus, of all things. Also known as the Parts Horror. Memorable 70s film. One of the, well, not one of the first, but one of the most memorable of these cheesy, oh my god, am I a clone films? You know, trying to stay young forever. Making fun of the original yuppie culture of the joggers and things like that that happened around that time. And he was in both airplane movies, of course. <laughs> striker, striker, striker! <laughs> oh, uh, does he have the best line of all time? <laughs> Which one are you thinking? It's like... With Bob the co-pilot? No, like when he's like to the young boy in the cockpit. Do you like watching Hercules movies? Yes. Yes, that's that's true. It's a very almost. You know, that's the thing. That's the thing about Mission Impossible, like to this day. There's like this weird homoerotic thing that's going on. Maybe I'm reading stuff into it because I'm a perv. But, I mean, hell, that fucking fight scene of Fallout between Superman, Ethan Hunt, and this like, Anonymous, he looks Japanese. Anonymous Japanese dude in the bathroom. Oh yeah, that was so much. And they even made fun of it. the Frenchmen were actually playing on that, like, hey, you know, the equivalent of hey, maricon, you know, let, let us in, we'll, we'll join you in your little uh, your trip yeah. in the men's room. <laughs> Because they went into a men's room and hid in the stall with this dead body that they just killed, trying to so that these guys wouldn't notice. But he and, wasn't dead, and he kicked their ass. I was yeah. like, what the fuck? But they're knocking on the stall and giving them crap. It was. <laughs> It was one of the yeah. funniest parts Come of the movie. Come on, ever. let's do a, let's do a male gangbang. Come on. Like, what the fuck? The guy notices it in the corner of his eye in the mirror, and he calls his buddies. He's like, hey, check this out. Yeah. <laughs> but but there, there there is, like, stuff going on. Like, So we have, because you, you obviously want to skip Barbara from other. We have Peter Lupus. Yes. As Willie Armitage, also known as Willie. If you go to Peter Lupus, I will say that he was a hardcore bodybuilder. Yes, he was. And yeah. he moved from things. He was actually in some peplos. He was in yeah, lesser ones. Yeah. Hercules and the Tyrants of Babylon. Goliath and the Consequences of Damascus. He was in a Frankie and Annette Beach movie, Muscle Beach Party. Yeah. And then, of course, he winds up as the muscle on Mission Impossible. I was amused at one point. They had, when he was on FX, the Fox knockoff channel in the 90s, mm. they used to show Mission Impossible all the time. And they would do this big thing, build up, and they'd say, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Lupus. And he'd just say something like, uh, need some help, Barney? And he's like, yeah, well, he's not known for his acting. It's to lift cars. And they'd show him, like, picking up a Honda or some crap like that. <laughs> but, you know, he was a likable guy. And yes. Yes. when they finally actually relented, because originally that was all he was doing, when they gave him more to do and they gave him some more dialogue in the final season mm-hmm. of Mission Impossible, it was kind of funny because you're like, well, he's a little bit <laughs> limited. You know, you can't picture him. They almost put him in the Barney role. Uh, they gave him that much dialogue and that kind of a, an orientation. Oh, look, we'll make him sort of the tech guy. And he's giving half the briefings himself, like he would take over half of what Graves say the rest of the time. Right. And yes. it was like, this doesn't sound right coming from this big, you know, <laughs> lug bodybuilder guy. But nonetheless, 
it said a lot about the series because for a while they lost him. You know, the producer said, eh, we don't need this guy. He does nothing. So they brought in a couple of other people. And <laughs> I actually have this written as, during that awful who? Was there someone there in his place? Sam Elliott they brought in. Uh, oh, horrible. Right. Yeah. And the viewing public was so pissed off, they started screaming. They were, they were lighting up the lines and writing to the producers. This actually happened, by the way, that they're like, all right, fine, we'll bring him back. And that's why they ended up giving him more dialogue, because that was part of his role. I'm going to come back, give me some more to do. And the rest of the series was not great, but it was certainly better than when it was without him. And he was also a recurrent Playgirl pinup. <laughs> And nowadays he's you know up there like seventy five or something like that, and they're still giving him age you know age rank categories in bodybuilding contests to this day. So you know all props to Peter Lupus. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and he has uh, some uh, vitamin subs. He's been hawking for the past twenty twenty five years. Uh, so the guy should know. Uh, I recall when I met him. You know, like, hit me on the head with a fucking stick. I never got a picture with him while you really? like that. Yeah, I know. He was hawking vitamin supplements, and I had a nice talk with him, and, like, I should have just bought a fucking bottle and took a picture with him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he was a really nice guy. Really nice guy. Before we get to Barber, I guess we're going to discuss Martin Landau. Yes. All right. Martin Landau comes in as Roland Hand. He was in season one for several episodes. Apparently he was a, what do they call him, a special guest star? Yeah, it was weird. You're right. Because special guest, well, he was you know, a, a, a theatrical actor, and he was in yep. major feature films. And special guest star, Martin Landau. And this, I think it even went for more than a season. Before he was in a couple of seasons as Martin Landau. Season two and three, he was at full cast, but in the beginning, he was just a special guest star. Yeah, very uh, And like you mentioned, he went to the actor's studio with Jimmy Dean. He claimed he was a close friend of his, which who knows could have been possible. He was in Hitchcock's North by Northwest, if you remember him as the baddie there, one of the baddies. Before later on right. winding up in more music for like yeah. Meteor, the Jim Brown black exploiter Black Gun, and using bottom feeder sci-fi horror films like Without Warning, where he was really drunk, The Return, The Being, <laughs> Alone in the Dark, the slasher film. But he didn't seem as washed out as he did in these films, uh, which were actually past uh, Space 99 they were later. Uh, and then he had one last shot of glory yeah. as a very Jewish, kvetching old man who was supposed to be passing as a Lugosi impression. It's the worst Lugosi impression you've ever seen in your life. But if you want to see him acting like a Jewish old man who's going to go and complain about everything, eh, his Bell Lugosi was horrible, but he was great in that. So they gave him a friggin' uh, an Oscar for that. <laughs> No, they gave, him a, they gave him an Oscar. And you know what? It's on YouTube, folks. Look me up. I actually interviewed Martin Landau on stage, and he, because I never thought about it, he said, North by Northwest. He said, let me tell you about that part. You see, I played him as gay. Why? Because I decided to. There were a lot of gay people in Hollywood. And he said, if you look at that film now, just think as I'm playing that character. I forgot the name. As a gay man. He says, if some of you picked up on that already, but now you hear it from me. So I was like, oh, gee, thanks, Martin. You know, like, <laughs> but I actually kind of thought about that anyway. Yeah, and that's true. That's true. And he said that I had – he also mentioned stuff like he had a talk with James Mason, who was a villain in that Hitchcock film, which is amongst my top two favorite Hitchcock movies, how they were going to play this. 
So uh, that was that was really interesting. Nice guy, a nice guy. I have to say, I, I yeah, I, I hear what you're saying about him as Bella Lugosi. Um, I wouldn't go where you're going where you went <laughs> with that, but uh, it was nice to. Well, he already won an Oscar for uh, a Woody the Perv Allen movie, uh, Crimes <laughs> and Misdemeanors. Now wait a minute, how the fucking Woody Allen marry his step fucking daughter? And shit like that, and and still like be directing movies with all these A-list characters, character actors. Well, Polanski's hiding out in Europe, and they keep trying to bring yeah. him back. <laughs> yeah, what's up with that? I think this. And don't get me started do. on Polanski. The girl was a 15-year-old fucking tramp whore yep. who was blowing and screwing everybody. And her mother house. was with her and approved the whole thing because you're going to become a star. Right. And that I, didn't happen, and there you go. All of a sudden, Polanski's Please don't. Please keep listening to our show, but I'm sorry. She was blowing and screwing everybody in Hollywood when this happened. Jack Nicholson, like, rented out his fucking piazza and everybody, because he's like, you want to fuck somebody doing here? And he's a perv, too. We all know that. And he's an 80-year-old perv. And but Julia Delpy said he was fun in bed. He's like, he's small, but he's fun. Yeah, right? Somebody said he's small. Yeah, yeah like, supposedly, oh, yeah, but he's like, lots of laughs. He's a clowns it up, so... Yeah, TMI. So, but Roman did this, and then look what happened. Yep. It's not it's not right the way things go down. I mean, yeah, people are people, and they don't do great things. But, hey, you know, really? He's the only guy out there doing something like that? Especially back then. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a touchy, touchy subject, which only got my ire a couple of weeks, months ago, when, like, Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman, I want to narrate my life. I'm sorry. So why mess with Morgan Freeman? Yeah, no, this this me too thing's ridiculous. But we won't go It's there. making things ridiculous. It's a complicated thing. It's the witch hunts all over again. You know, if Arthur Miller was around, he'd write another crucible about it. So anyway. So anyway, um, we're going to talk about another featured actor of the series. So Greg Morris is in there. Yeah. Barney, Barney Miller. Uh, Barney Collier. Barney Collier. Barney Miller. Yes, I'm sorry, folks. Barney Miller, a show I very rarely watched. Uh, because It's hard to watch. I mean, uh, okay, Jack Sue are fine, but I mean, I don't know. It's, I tried watching it again about a year or so back. I'm like, why did we used to watch this when I was a kid? Talk about racism. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, like uh, James Gregory going to, to Jack Sue. You're looking a little yellow today. You got hepatitis? No, I'm Chinese. I'm like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> that was the error. No, Barney Collier, and apologies to everyone. Yeah, well, Greg uh, was with the show for years. And he, uh, it's at the time, I mentioned him before somewhere. Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. I Spy. Yes, by the show. Diane Carroll with, what is that, Julia or something? Julia, the show Nicole, Star Trek. Mod Squad with uh, Clarence Williams III. Clarence There were a couple shows. There were only this. a couple shows who had an African-American actor in the leading role. And right. and first, Greg's parts were like, I could do this. Yo, the guy was great, though. Yo, he must have done a lot of stage. He just had such a great voice. And I'm sure he did a lot of stage. Because he just had such a great voice and authoritarian presence, he knew how to roll that up and condense it into a part where, I think I can figure this out, Jim. Yeah, 
<laughs> they also kind of made him the smart guy of the series because he was yes. the electronics expert, which was the equivalent of being like the tech guy today. He would wire together all these crazy gadgets for everybody else where, you know, okay, Roland Ham was the actor and he did the face masks and all that crap. You know, Cinnamon there were going basically whore her way into <laughs> getting information out of people. Uh, yeah. Lupus was the bodybuilder and the muscle and he kind of did backup. But, you know, really most of these missions kind of centered on him. Not that he was doing... I don't think he was that great of an actor. He was more of just a presence, like you say. He's very kind of one-note in a lot of ways. But nonetheless, you mentioned about the voice, which was kind of very, very gravelly and oversmoked. And he carried himself in a more than respectable manner. He didn't come in there shucking and jiving like Jimmy Walker or something. This is more like a William Marshall role. Or Calvin Lockhart with less vim and vigor, I guess. Right, but in later seasons, though, they actually threw him some really nice episodes mm-hmm. where he... Well, they kept making him fall in love. If there was a black girl on the show for the episode, it was going to be his love interest. <laughs> like, really? Okay. Well, yeah, but it was usually somebody good, though. It was usually like Vanetta McGee, yeah. you know, was, or, or Diane Carroll, God knows. Yeah. You know, it was people of that ilk. And uh, always liked him. Actually, his son shows up in the 80s series, yep. Yes. As does he for a couple episodes, which is interesting. But we'll get to that. Yeah. But I will say that he was basically famed for the show. He didn't really do a lot outside it. He did turn up in that cheesy Robert Urich series, Vegas, and he was there from, I guess, the second season on. Otherwise, he was kind of a TV bit player. He turned up in the Revival series, like I mentioned. Uh, so did Linda Day George, who we'll get to soon, and Peter Graves, of course, and his son, just like you mentioned. So, But finally comes the other half. We're going to mention Space 1999 in a bit, and apparently Jerry Anderson was kind of warned not to use <laughs> Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, who were married, uh, because they were kind of notorious flushes. <laughs> uh, I don't even mean like the two of us. I mean, these guys were like uh, under the table drunks from what I hear. <laughs> that was the rumor mill anyway. So she came in as Cinnamon Carter. Now, her role was kind of funny because I had mentioned her previously in other shows as kind of being like, you mentioned she was kind of milfy gilfy, and I could see that. But she was trying to do a Lauren Bacall, I guess, that kind of smoky, older, but still horny (laughs) kind of woman who's going to walk in. And her job was basically to tramp it up. She was there as not necessarily the love interest for the the young dads to check out. It was more of she was there to go and play Matahari and get the information out of the baddies by pretending to be whatever the gun mall or the gangster mall or the Ava Brown to the Nazis because they were doing Nazis everywhere back then. so, 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 why are we saying this? Because in many, many episodes, you know, they dun, 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 they throw down Cinema Carter, famous, uh, famous actress, stage, screen, whatever, and like you know, they, everybody gets briefed on the episode. Cinnamon has to sleep with the South American dictator, fat, yes. skinny, whatever, handsome, maybe Fernando Llanos, who the fuck knows? Maybe he was in the show. Never know. <laughs> You know, in El Puerto, in Vazdekistan, they had to, after a while they got really creative with these names. And <laughs> a lot of these guys were fat and scary. Day, <laughs> well, not all of them. Some of them were pretty, you know. Uh, <laughs> Character actors. Picture, uh, who's the guy who played Fall Space? Malachi Throne, like that kind of. Uh... <laughs> or Anthony Zerby, you know, that kind of guy. And so, <laughs> you know, we're, talking, we're talking real <laughs> handsome there. Uh, so I'm sure it'd be nice for Fernando Lamas. But anyway, Zero Mostel. <laughs> no, but the whole thing was like Cinnamon had to fuck him and like yep. in, ingratiate herself with these, these dictators, uh, warlords, and uh, eventually, later seasons, European fucking Baltic state psychopaths. Yep. 
uh, neo-Nazis, but you knew by like halfway through the show, she was like, fucking them. So that, that was Cinnamon Carter's role. It was like, yep. fuck them and like, you know, trying to spin the head, you know, she must have gave amazing blowjobs or something, I don't know. But, uh, she wasn't like ugly or anything, it's just, you know, she was obviously older, very oversmoked, and, you know, okay, I hear this thing about them being drinkers, I could see it, she looks like a drinker. <laughs> yeah, very, very strange how they, they played the whole thing out. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of like, they throw Cinnamon's 8x10 pro wall picture on a table, <laughs> And she's okay, like, okay, I gotta fuck this guy, one for the team. No problem. Literally, right? <laughs> uh, there are a few where actually Cinnamon falls for the guy. Yeah, um, a couple. Not that many, but yeah. No, I say a few. And, and, and it gets kind of complicated. And uh, oddly enough, nobody within the team falls for each other. No. Not at all. Especially there's no characterization involved. And yeah. remember, this is his wife. You know, Martin Lando and Barbara Bain kind of came as a, a package deal. Right. Uh, for over 35 years, they were married. And aside from her roles here in what, Space 99 later with him, her biggest role really was winding up in bit parts on both of the Mike Hammer series, the Darren McGavin one back in 59, and then the Stacey <laughs> Keach one in 1984, which is more notable for its reliance on big-titted extras than anything about the show or star themselves. So just that in itself is fascinating. Like, why'd they put her on that show? Whatever. Not a lot. Mission Impossible was almost like, uh, not for Landau, but it was almost kind of like a kiss of death. Like, you never really could break out of this role, maybe because it ran so long. You know, maybe everybody just associated with seven years plus of you playing the same character. But, yeah, I mean... She was definitely one of those. That was the first three seasons we're talking about. The first three, three point four seasons. And there's no question those are the best. If you're gonna you know, dip yeah. in your toes into Mission Impossible, stick to those three, and then maybe go for season seven. Uh, it's a big jump. You're gonna want to skip. They they also weren't afraid to fuck with things. They they had to. So I want to point out that the trial, the confession. These these are some of the really good episodes. There's just a lot. Of, there's a lot of neo-Nazi stuff going on. Yeah, originally it starts out, and there's a lot of the typical, like you see on a lot of these spy series, the vaguely communist, but we can't name Russia or right. know, Vietnam or Cuba or whoever. So we'll just say it's a South American dictatorship, or it's an Eastern European dictatorship, <laughs> or it's an Asian dictatorship out of China, but we don't say it's China. <laughs> and they give some stupid name like Voxlavia or something. But then later, as that kind of, I don't know if it faded or what happened, but they started going more for these Nazi ones. I thought it was Landau pushing, to be honest, because he was always playing a freaking Nazi. I don't know why this is his big go-to. And they were always trying to, you know, I guess down in Argentina they were all hiding at the time. This is before Simon Wiesenthal did all his work. And all these people like Mengele were still floating around down there somewhere. So they were always down in South America, always finding these people that were either, you know, descendants that were supposed to go and take it up the mantle and find the Nazi gold and become the Fourth Reich or something, or they were holdovers. And every it seemed like every week for a while it was a neo-Nazi episode. But 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 some of those episodes are pretty good. Some of those episodes are pretty good, I thought. Some of them are. Uh, it's it's some, a good show. Uh, I mean, there's no question about it. It won a lot of awards for a reason. But it's very strange. And like I mentioned earlier, it's more of a ritualistic series than something you watch to watch character development. Because you're not going to get any. So as time went on, and Landau went to and Bain 
and uh, well, they just—I don't know what happened to them. They took off, and it was a while before they wound up going on Space 1999. And like I said, by then they were kind of already a, a risk, you know, a bit blacklisted in a sense. But yeah, once they disappeared for whatever that reason was, I don't know if you know why that happened. They brought in people because they got to keep the show going. It's doing really well. They got great ratings. Like okay, and half the cast or more are still here. So we have Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy, yeah, and you would think, you know, being a, a Star Trek fan since I was pretty young, I was like, oh, that'd be great, you know, Mr. Spock, let's say, all right, fine, you know, he sort of looks like Landau in a weird way, if you look at him, like, sideways through a, a funhouse mirror, uh, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's see how this worked, and they put him in the exact same role, basically, he was supposed to be Roland Hand, they just called him the Great Paris, he didn't have a name, that was his stage name, I guess, from when he was a magician, and... I said, you know, Mr. Spock and a wildly 70s fashion sporting host of In Search of Himself with his deeply felt personal quest to find out about Vincent Van Gogh because he played his brother on stage once. I don't know if I've ever seen that episode. It's hilarious. And he's, and he's offering wearing a cravat for some reason. Yes. He looked like yes. Freddie from Scooby-Doo. He's a terrible yes. singer. He had numerous albums out where he did everything from butchering popular hits like If I Had a Hammer and Proud Mary to songs about Tolkien and from the perspective of Mr. Spock like Highly Illogical and The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins all without any measure of that tongue-in-cheek inanity of his pal William Shatner with the Transformed Man. Or talent. Yeah, there you go, exactly. In later <laughs> life, he spent a lot of his time hucking books of photography. Most amusingly, I, I saw him once. He got a free ticket to go to this thing that was the, the bastard son of a creation con back in, oh, jeez, must have been the early 2000s. And it was he was hucking a book that was photos of his naked daughter, uh, some book called Shekinah. He was always pushing his own photography, and this was all about him taking pictures of his naked daughter. I'm like, wow, what a weird dude. <laughs> but it was it was only about a year or two before his death. Yes. Yeah, it was close to that. When, uh, I, it, it, this might be on Netflix or something. I know it's certainly on DVD, where Bill Shatner and him had it sit down, and it's recorded, it's videoed, where he talks about his lifetime battle with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And apparently he was deeply deeply heavily an alcoholic which i found shocking only because he seemed to be one of those actors who was very much in control yes. and y'all like uh let me see dana andrews gig young you know actors we knew and know from history there's a multitude of them. lawrence tierney you know there's more you know they look like they're a fucking drunk yeah <laughs> but but you know you, you never would assume that from Leonard Nimoy. No, no, no. So, but but it, he came out and and said that in this interview, and then he did a, he did a book shortly thereafter, and then uh, he made appearances in the new Star Trek films, the recent ones, and then he suddenly took ill. Well, he was older, but he suddenly took gravely ill and passed. But uh, yeah, all that was in like a you know five six year span of time. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. The Cinnamon Carter replacement, there were two. Yeah, there were several, actually. But what yeah. happens in the beginning is, is, this is season four and five we're talking about initially. Right, yes. So season five, they said, you know what? Let's go, I mean, this, the whole Cinnamon thing, okay, she was older, whatever. Let's get somebody young and you know, more of like the hippie generation or the me generation at that point, because you know, we're kind of bordering into the 70s now. Let's pull in Leslie Ann Warren, who was young. She didn't really make a name for herself yet. Okay, you know, she's got that sort of uh, big-eyed, darkly attractive, you can tell she's got something going on in her head, she's not an idiot, and put her out in this thing. The trick is that 
Oh, and I also mentioned that Kiss's Paul Stanley chased after her unsuccessfully. It's actually read one of the Kiss biographies, and he's talking about that. And she was starring in crap later on, like Victor Victoria and Mel Brooks' Life Stinks. There's one for the ages. Uh, but mostly she was a TV bit player. But even so, she became something later. At this point, she was kind of untested, and she admits herself that she wasn't really ready for the role in the sense that she probably could have been better in the background more than she was. They kind of threw her into the limelight, uh, into the lion's den, if you will. Threw her in the deep end and said, here, you know, do something, swim. And she couldn't really swim too well. So watching some of her episodes where she's basically trying to do the same thing. Okay, here's the young sort of hippie chick going and doing the Cinnamon Carter role. And it's like, why are these guys going for this again? Are they just into jail bait? What's the deal? Because <laughs> she was really not that good. And she admits it herself. So that does not work at all. And what they do after that very quickly is they pull in Linda Day George, which, again, okay, you're getting older. Uh, she's, again, got the big eyes, not quite as intelligent, if we put it that way. She was the wife of Christopher George, uh, the likable star of things like Wampy Kirsten's Pieces and Fulci City Living Dead. Uh, she was also in Pieces. She was in Mortuary, Beyond Evil. She was a TV bit player. Uh, those of you who remember the original Wonder Woman series, she was Fausta, the Nazi Wonder Woman, in one of the episodes. Uh, beat her at a weightlifting contest. But, you know, I thought she actually was okay here. I did not mind her. I didn't think she was great, but she was like, all right. This fits better than uh, What's-Her-Face did. And then towards the end, <laughs> in season seven, they brought in another one to interplay with her. Like, okay, well, some episodes it'll be her, some episodes it'll be Barbara Anderson, who was a TV bit player, who was probably most known for Ironside, the Raymond Burr one, who's getting pushed around in a wheelchair by, uh, I don't remember the guy who's a black actor. Oh, Don, Don. Yeah. Not, not Don Draper. Sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, those of you who remember that scene. Not Don Maybe it was. Maybe it was Don Maybe it was. But that's what she's most known for. She shows up here. She's okay. But Linda Day George is clearly the better choice. She could have been another Barbara Bain. I'll give her that. And between Bain and Warren, they actually started a whole shitload of people. And I'll kind of rattle some of them off. They had previously, way back in season one, start Eartha Kitt as this really flexible. I never looked at her yes. to get that way. Uh, she was very flexible. I'm like, hmm, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I never looked at Eartha Kitt that way. And there was like a, she was around. Yeah, she was like a gymnast or something. I'm I like, was okay, like, okay, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Joan Collins. Yes, Joan Collins. Alexandra Hay, a pretty blonde bit player. Yes. Uh, Lee Merriweather, the worst of the Catwomans from the Batman movie. Dina Merrill, TV bit player. Yes. Sally Ann Howes of Death Ship. And Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, if you can believe that. Honey West herself shows up in this thing. Anne Francis. Who was the one? Remember the one where they went to the Eastern European country yeah. and they had to get the guy out of the castle and they had this actress who was also a gymnast? That was her, wasn't it? That was the Eartha Kid. That was way back when. No, no, she was white. Cause they, yeah, she was, uh, they were in Eastern European country and fuck, it was like Marianne Mobley or somebody like that. Just some odd choice. Well, they had Michelle who, Carey from uh, Live a Little, Love a Little was in one. <laughs> yeah, I you know, it was like something like you know they made they made these actresses be you know they might have been in Frankie Avalon movies they might have been in uh, the Robert Conrad thing Wild Wild West and they made them oofy looking like. 
Damn, I never look at him like that. Yeah, weird people. Barbara Luna from Star Trek. Ju- yes. Julie Gregg, who was in soap operas like Santa Barbara and Sunset Beach. And Barbara Luna, Barbara Luna always thought she was hot. <laughs> she always thought she was She was doing fuck conventions yeah. for fucking 50 years. Yeah. I'm hot. I was in Star Trek. I wouldn't do you because you look like my great-grandmother. Yeah, say, did you but, see her later? She wasn't very hot. <laughs> but Mission Impossible had a way for making this movement, except for, according to you, Barbara Bain, look, <laughs> look like, you know, hey, you know, I could see them on these missions. Um, Margarita Cordova of Godfather 1 and 2. Antoinette Bauer, who was in Star Trek. Didn't she just pass? She just passed. Yeah, she did. The Mephisto Waltz, Super Beast, Prom Night, The Unpleasant Bronson Vehicle that was funded by Mexico, Evil That Men Do. Jessica Walter from the Doctor Strange TV movie with Peter Hooten and Play Misty for Me. Lynn Kellogg from the Elvis Cowboy Stinker Charlie. Oh, wow. Yeah, I forgot Maria Malik uh, from In Like Flint. I mean, this is like 14 women rotating in and out as effective replacements for Bane, which says a lot. They could not find somebody to replace her. So, you know, okay, I'm knocking her a little bit for looking a little bit old, but, you know, that says something. She, nobody could do this fucking role. She's not replaceable, yeah. yeah. Now, you mentioned Sam Elliott. You kind of knocked him oh, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> he was horrible in the show. All right. But wait, wait, wait. This is a young Sam Elliott. Yes. So we're talking, uh, help me out, what, what year was this? Uh, he was in season five. That was, uh, what is it, 69? No, 70. 70. I actually put him as cardboard cutout bit player, most notable for starring in the Ray Milan Echo Horror Frogs and the Roger Daltrey The Legacy, before turning up in crap like Roadhouse, Fatal Beauty, Tombstone, the Nicolas Cage Ghost Rider, he was the 40s cowboy version, and the unwatchable Ang Lee Hulk. So, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Sam Lee anyway. But. Oh, you're right. Yeah, 7071. Well, see, this is this is seventy seventy one. This is before Sam Elliott, who became the guru to all those cool people, uh, grew that Harry Reams mustache. Yes, he didn't have the porn star mustache yet. He was kind of young, and he didn't even notice him except he had a southern accent. That was it. Well, he did it. He did. He was like hopping around TV back in the day, doing this Marcus Welby wannabe like TV doctor or whatever the fuck it was called. And he played a doctor here too. Remember? Yeah, Doctor Doug <laughs> Robert, right? But yep. Sam didn't get that thing going until until later, and uh, it was still too early for him to have that gravitas for his role. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, Mission Impossible is you know we went through the Cold War, we went through the Nazis invading Slavic countries. They were dealing with mobsters. I don't know if the yes. Shatner episode was one apparently where he was getting older, and they did something that was like the what I was talking about in the movie in MI6, where they actually set up this thing for him, I guess in a warehouse or whatever, and they convinced him that time had been turned back 30 years and he was young again. Like really? How the hell do you do this crap? Is people that dumb? Well, you know what? That's not a that episode, though. It's, it, and here's here's the thing, too. You know, we, we mentioned people like Anthony Zerby and Shatner and lots of other people who post Star Trek. You know, Shatner was bouncing around. We did a Shatner show recently. Yes. You know, uh, a lot, lots of people, lots of, lots of character actors, lots of really good actors, lots of people who were trying to make money. You know, they did... <laughs> No, they did Summerstock, they did Off-Broadway, they did Broadway, they did TV, they had feature roles, those things were short-lived, and they would be spending a majority of their life... You know, here's the thing, I, I, I know neither one of us mentioned this at this point, some people came back repeatedly to Mission Impossible yes. in villain parts in different roles yeah. during the show. Well, because the villains all died at the end, that's why they walk away laughing, because everybody's dead. 
<laughs> right, right. So, like, it would be funny. You would see, hey, wait a minute. I saw this guy last year. Yep. So they would bring actors back. But this was the cream of the crop of 60s and 70s character actors. Uh, guys yeah. that you would see, let's say, I mentioned Barney Miller as a fall ball before. Guys you would see on Barney Miller. <laughs> guys that you would see on on uh, Married with Children years later. I mean, like, It's literally. the equivalent of what was going on with the Batman series. Yes. The difference is there it was more, who the hell found this person? Why are they in this show for a cameo? You know, popping out a window or whatever. Liberace or something. Jerry Lewis, whatever. Whereas this was more people that were TV bit actors that you would see here and there. And yet this was like the prestige go-to. Like, oh, I'm a Mission Impossible. And I came back once even. So that was like, ooh, wow, you know, nice. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's a good point you brought up. That's a good point you brought up, my friend, because a lot of these guys were bit actors. And Mission Impossible decided to, uh, you know, the, the producers decided, let's give them a bigger part. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, they would play coroners on doctor shows. They would play, like, the detective of five lines on another show. But you've seen that guy 40 times before. They would give them a pumped-up part. Yes. Which, you know, I, not only did they appreciate it, I'm sure, if not for monetarily, but, you know, just in no, scheme so. of the scheme of things, I'm sure it was probably really nice for them to it say. It was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I'm sure. Now, the show came back. It, it finally went off the air after uh, seven episodes, correct? Oh, and I also say after the seventh season, in the middle of that, they used the Star Trek music a lot, like the fight music. <laughs> it wasn't all uh, top dollar, but, you know, it's television. What do you want? But, yes, so it, the series went off air eventually. Apparently, uh, the show was originally a Sunday show. And then, of course, the network decided to fuck with it, move it to Saturdays. Then it moved to Thursdays. Sounds familiar, huh? <laughs> that was the end of it. You know, it's off air. So in, I think it was 88, they had the writer's strike. It was one of the original big deal ones. That's why that became like a common thing. It wasn't the one where all of a sudden everybody started doing reality TV or whatever the hell because it was easy and cheap. But it was one of the big ones that everybody was talking about. Oh, God, it's going to cripple the networks. What happens to our fall season? So what they did was... Hey, we got these old Mission Impossible scripts. We can go and film this on the cheap down in, at the time. Australia was one of the cheap go-tos, like Canada was at one point, and Eastern Europe was at another point, like Romania. We had mentioned this on other shows with movies. So at this point, they said, let's do that. We'll take some of these old scripts, we'll redo them, and it'll be like a mid-season replacement, you know, to cover this writer's strike, and then we'll see what happens. And apparently it went so well, and they liked so much what was going on, even though the series was not a hit. They said, let's start doing some original episodes. So they had a revival series for, I think it was 87, 88, or 88, 89. 88, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we originally was like, God, Jesus, this is going to suck. Should we even watch it? And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Let's give it a shot. We enjoyed the series. We've been watching it so long. What are we going to put on now? So we put it on. I'm like, this is actually not that bad. So now you have the revival cast. Peter Graves comes back. They, they got this fellow or Thad Pengelis, his name is almost unpronounceable if you look at it written, who is basically, once again, the uh, Ron Hand character. He was a soap star. He was a veteran of a lot of shows like Days of Our Lodge, General Hospital, whatever. He was in General Hospital for decades, I think. TV bit player. But he comes on here and he's doing that role. And 
okay, yeah, he's small, he's chatty, but he actually does a decent job. I mean, sometimes he looks like a Jeffrey Combs type, but he carries himself better. He's got more of... You can believe that he's got a little bit of panache. You know, some episodes he dresses up and pretends to be whatever mm-hmm. big-time gambler or a big-time drug dealer or something. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, he could sort of pull it off, at least by TV standards. He's not bad at all. He's actually one of the better actors in this series. Then they have a fella, Anthony Hamilton, who is... <laughs> he's a big, lunk guy. You know, he's a big, big, tall, you know, probably close to seven-foot Australian guy, blonde hair. And yet I was like, Something's off about this guy. He doesn't really seem like the usual, like a Peter Lupus type that you would think. Because he's actually doing other stuff. He still does a lot of acting, and where he's like, yeah, something's going on here. I don't think he's just like a theatrical type, you know, frustrated. It turns out that he was a former ballet dancer and a male model. And, of course, it's probably no surprise, going from all what he said, that he was also a gay man. And, uh, unfortunately, he passed away at 42 from AIDS. He was an occasional TV bit player. He did appear in Howling 4, and the Basic Instinct spoofed Fatal Instinct for what that's worth. But this was kind of what he was mostly known for, I guess. Not bad. I mean, he actually can sort of act. It's not like... Again, I love Peter Lupus. I think he's great. But it's not like watching him sort of try to act in the later seasons of uh, Mission Impossible. It's like, okay, well, whatever. But I don't... You don't connect with him. At least I didn't connect with him like he did with this uh, Pengos fellow. Phil Morris, who makes his father look like an acting genius, but he's not terrible, believe it or not, who is Barney's son there, Greg Morris's son. Uh, he didn't do too much beyond this. He wound up in a role in Star Trek Three: Search for Spock, but he does a lot of voice acting in DC superhero cartoons. So I'm guessing, like, I don't know, but, you know, I would assume, like, when you see Black Lightning or Green Lantern or anybody with a really deep voice, like a dark side or whatever, it's probably him. He's got, especially in later days, a really kind of mugging sort of a face, like a, a, one of those like Jerry Lewis meets uh, Arsenio Hall, kind of like you can oh. picture him doing comedy. He doesn't seem like a classically handsome leading man type. He doesn't have the, I don't want to say gravitas, but you know what I mean, what you told me before with his father where he's got that presence, he doesn't really have that at all. But he's likable as hell. And, you know, he does a decent job for what he's doing. And then they had the women. So, okay, we're trying to do the cinnamon thing, but they're trying to keep it a little bit younger, whatever. So first off, they get this girl, Terry Markwell. Ooh, I want to slap my forehead right now. She (laughs) was bad. I mean, this girl clearly, it it was like a struggle to say two lines. Like, oh, my God, this girl's working on a five-watt bulb. She is really dumb and a really bad actress. Not bad looking, I guess. You know, kind of a pop-eyed redhead that sort of reminds you of a dumb version of the one that did She Wolf of London. But nowhere near that intelligent or likable. It's just like, oh my god, this girl's bad. Not horrible to look at, it, but oof. She was apparently such a complete bitch. She demanded more screen time and focus than she already got. And mine, she was already getting a hell of a lot, considering this is an ensemble cast. They almost made her the focus of all the episodes she was in. But no, she wanted more acting time, and she could not fucking act her way over a paper bag if it was wet. So she's actually infamous, therefore, for being the only character who was not fired behind the scenes, but actually killed on screen and written off. And they actually 
gave her um, in the next episode when they brought back the next season or whatever happened when they switched characters they actually mentioned it on screen this never happened in all these seasons you know nine seasons of Mission Impossible nobody was ever treated this way it's like god damn you bitch get out of here you're written <laughs> off you're never coming back you're dead goodbye that's how frustrated the producers were with this woman and of course probably not surprisingly she did absolutely nothing else with her career unless you consider three episodes of sliders as a major career achievement. So Terry Markwell, yeah, good learnings. Uh, so then they bring in this woman, Jane Badler, who was actually on V. Remember the frizzy-haired baddie? Yes, she's older, yes, she's yes. a little scarier because you know she's clearly in her mid-40s. Mm. She's got this yuppie sort of female executive <laughs> fashion sense and demeanor, you know, like, like the angular shoulder pads and the, the cut-off lampshade hairdo. She gets the centrality that Markwell demanded, but she comes off a hell of a lot more intelligent and capable of delivering her lines and emoting something which is obviously beyond Marco's capabilities. But unfortunately, this meant a lot more syrupy romance episodes and a hell of a lot of her singing in nightclubs, which apparently was something with her even after the series ended. And she was in a few soaps as well, you know, Days of Our Lives, Falcon Crest, One Life to Live. But that's your cast for you. There were a couple of remake episodes. They weren't bad. But most of the series, surprisingly, actually was original. And they brought back Linda Day George was in one episode. Greg Morris was in at least two. Did he actually get killed off? Do you remember if he survived the episode? Oh, you know, I, I don't remember. I'm yeah, because they were making it like he was going to die, but I can't remember if, to, at this point whether he actually survived the episode or not. I don't think so. I think he died. But uh, Bob Johnson was back. No, Bob, Bob was the guy who used to do the voice. Remember for the tape? Mr. Phelps. Yeah. So after, like, fucking 30 years, they like, hey, you still around? <laughs> <laughs> and Graves, like you mentioned much, much earlier, was looking kind of... Yeah, yeah, Graves was, like, brought in like a... And, and here's the connection to that Avengers thing I mentioned before. The original Avengers reboot was a co-production between Canada and England. Yes. And then in the second year, it was Canada only, which means they lost the English money and they lost they lost part of the budget. So the second year of the reboot of the Avengers with McNeil, Lumley, and uh, Gareth Hunt really suffered. And the second year of this Mission Impossible reboot... Yeah, they moved to another spot in Australia. I forget where the original was. They went to Queensland. Yeah, and it looked like something happened. It like yeah. suddenly we're, 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 the straws have been a little tightened. Mm-hmm. And we are definitely giving Peter Graves now, I, I don't want to hazard to guess his age at this point, and he's doing well. More stuff, he's running around, he's not just giving out orders. Oh, he's no, actually, he was part of the team, he was actually out there. Yeah. Part of the team, and, and you know, it was nice to see, because like, hey, alright, this older guy's doing it, you know, fuck it. But the budgets definitely suffered, and then just let it to be the end of the series. Yeah, I mean, Graves, it depends how you look at it. I looked at it like, you know, it's 20-some-odd years later, he's looking pretty good, he's not that much different, even though you can hear the dentures clicking a little bit. But, <laughs> you know, I've heard people say, and it's true, my wife said it too, it's like, wow, he really looks whooped, what happened? So, who knows, I know he's a Bible thumper, I don't imagine he was much of a drinker, but... You know, aging does things to people. People go through stuff. True. true so you know, true. he wasn't 
the spry young chicken he was back in the 60s, let's put it that way. Right. But, you know, nonetheless, he does a good job. He definitely becomes the, one of the centerpieces of the series, if not the centerpiece. And, uh, it, like I said, it's much, much better than you would think. And probably better than its reputation as well. I was very surprised, pleasantly surprised by this series. So I do recommend it if anybody's out there and enjoys the first three seasons of Mission Impossible. Jump ahead towards the end when Peter Lupus is back and you get more Linda Day George as being the uh, the Barbara Bain replacement. Those are really good. Surprisingly, because the series, you think it was, okay, so towards the end it's going to be horrible. It was horrible from 4, 5, and 6. And then somewhere in the middle of 6 going into 7, it's like, you know, this is actually good again. What happened? And then it gets canceled. So do those, and then I would suggest checking out 8889. They are much better than you would expect. So uh, in the middle of this, during this long hiatus when they're really not doing much, I guess they're blacklisted. Who knows? Maybe they're just off on a really long honeymoon, binge drinking their way into Nirvana. (laughs) But uh, Bane and uh, Landau wind up getting hired for Space 1999. It was actually the last production that was in partnership between Jerry and Sylvia Anderson because they had split. It was the most expensive series produced for British television to that point. They they laid a lot of money into that first season. It was co-produced by ITC and the Italian broadcaster RAI. And the second series, of course, they lose that Italian money and Whew, does it change? Uh, <laughs> the original premise, it's, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but basically the moon, there's a massive thermonuclear explosion on September 13th, 1999. Wow. Were they two days off and about a year different, two years different? Anyway, the force of the blast propels the moon like a booster rocket because they got a moon base on there. And basically the moon goes through space and travels through, I think it actually goes through a black hole and comes out a wormhole and all this crap. And they wind up deep into space, kind of like Farscape, on the moon, mind you, with their little you know fighter jets, whatever the hell they got to go explore various planets. And it sounds utterly ridiculous. It's the kind of sci-fi that only like a five-year-old could have come with the concept. And yet it works to an extent. I mean, I know Isaac Adams I was very upset about this. There's no way this could possibly happen. But it, the first season is really actually pretty good. I enjoyed it a lot, especially for a post-Star Trek series. During that decade, there really wasn't that much. A lot of people tried. Certainly, Gene Roddenberry kept trying with the Earth 2 or Genesis, whatever the hell. All those films he kept doing with John Saxon, trying to bring back the uh, Star Trek motif, more or less. And a whole bunch of other series tried to copy this, too. The Star Lost or whatever. Right. It really wasn't working. Space 1999 was damn close. That was really close. Close. That first season was gold, and I can tell you, as a kid growing up back then, that was the shit. I mean, everybody, oh, wait, let's see what Space 99 last week. Oh, really good stuff, except for the fact that you have to kind of, you know, put your credulity in the check. Oh, the moon is flying through space. No problems there. Uh, <laughs> Apparently, like I had mentioned, the two of them were cast against Lou Grade's insistence. He was like, no, I don't want these guys on here. They're drunks. And also, Sylvia Anderson said, nope, don't want them. But nonetheless, uh, they said, you know what? If we're going to put our money in the Italian Spire did it, we want people that they're going to recognize. We don't want just British actors. We don't want you going for, you know, whoever, uh, let's say Peter Wingard, which might have been nice, but nonetheless. And I'll say that they, I enjoyed them on this series. Uh, it's not quite the same thing as Mission Impossible, but then again, they get more characterization. They're trying to do Star Trek. I mean, he's no Shatner as Captain Kirk for sure, but they are trying to do something with this. And the Barry Morse in the first series, also really good. He was kind of, he was in the Peter O'Toole, David Hemmings, Donald Pleasance film Power Play. He was in the George C. Scott's Ghost Story, The Changeling. Otherwise, he's mostly a TV bit player, except for a bizarre appearance in that piece of shit, the telephone book that Vinegar mm. Singer put up. 
but nonetheless, here he's he's actually rather good. I like the interplay there. He was kind of doing a less abrasive uh, Bones McCoy. In both series, a fellow named Nick Tate, Alan Carter. Yes, the late Nick Tate. He was decent. He was kind of like the, I guess the equivalent of the red shirt, but he never died. (laughs) He kind of ran the expeditions to the planets and stuff. Was the younger one. Xenia Martin was in both series. She was actually uh, in a Jason King episode named after her. There is an episode named Xenia in Jason King. So, you know, yes, she's a TV bit player, but nonetheless, that's kind of uh, an interesting thing right there. And... That was kind of it for the first... Oh, actually, no. The first season, you also had a fellow named Prentice Hancock, Paul Morrow. He was another TV bit player. Turned up in Doctor Who. He turned up the Protectors, which also had some cast members from the series. And that was the first series. The, apparently, they were pulling a lot from things like, you know, 2001. It's very mm-hmm. interesting mix of the Star Trek aesthetic and the more hard SF you were seeing in the films of the time. You know, I don't want to say something like Southern Green or Fahrenheit 451. They're more Earth-based, but something more outer space-ish, and immediately I always think Silent Running, not really that, but you know, you can even say something like, you know, Westworld Future World, that sort of... Or Jerry Anderson's, I believe it's Jerry Anderson's own mindfuck Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. Yes, that one too, you're correct. There was a lot of these kind of movies going on during that decade, and yeah, okay, some were more forgettable, some were just cheesy, but it, it worked. It was decent stuff, and the fact that you kind of went somewhere between, I don't think it had the politics of, and the message of Star Trek, but somewhere between that and the hard SF of the 70s, it was an engaging mix. I mean, people liked this series, like I mentioned. And then, unfortunately... Wait, let me jump in there. Go right ahead. Uh, Before you get to season two, I know where you're going with this. Uh, So, we have Guy Behind Captain Scarlet and the Thunderbirds, you know, Marionation, and a couple other things. And, uh, you know, some of us like them. Uh, I, I enjoy them heartily. Captain Scott is kind of really weird and twisty. Thunderbirds doesn't play as well <laughs> as I remember, but you know, but Captain Scarlet does. So this is marionation. What was marionation? There was puppets done with very thin wires, strings, really deep stories. Yep. I had mentioned the Secret Service when we were doing one of those yes. British uh, you know, cult Service. TV series. Yeah. It's fascinating. The guy's a freaking priest, and he's got a sidekick that basically does all the dirty work. They've got a little sports car they go around it, and he shrinks. They've got a shrinking ray. And he's actually a spy for the government. Fascinating, crazy idea, but it works. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Secret Service is another one. And so we have post-Mission Impossible, post these other shows. Yep. We have a live-action show about a moon base. You know, people are shuttling back and forth between Earth and, and the moon. And the breakaway pilot episode, two-parter, breakaway is when the moon breaks away from fucking Earth. And, yeah, well, okay, so let's look at this on a few levels. Cheesy? Yes, but... And, you know, we... You mentioned, (laughs) you know, Lando and Bane's storied uh, imbibedness. Inebriation? Love of the model? (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) And, and, And that being recognized by casting people... But you know what? They're on point. In oh, yeah. Serious? They're on point. I would say, God, they're fucking putting it away for this. Because, yeah, he's no Shatner, but he's authoritarian. Yes. Martin Lando fucking owns the series. Yes, it does. And even in the weekend sec- second season, which, you know, I'll, I'll hand back to you in a moment. But great, great show. Nick Tate, Barry Morris. I mean, for some people, it's still like, no, it's good. It's gold. Because, yeah. you know, you got original track, you got this. Mm-hmm. And for some people, they have their pick of the Doctor Who favorites. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, to each his own. Some people like Baker. Some people like Pertwee. Some people like Tennant. Some people like uh, the guy who did one season. Colin Baker? No, no, no. Later. Eccleston. Eccleston. And then some people fucking hate uh, Matt Smith, but you thought it was okay. <laughs> And then, right. and then there's the new mystery person. Oh, did I completely miss the one I can't stand? But it's okay. And so, uh, but anyway, so, you know, as in all the things we discuss. Am I a good person? Yes, you are. <laughs> everything's in the eye of the beholder. And everything is, but with the show we do, though, we try to say, hey, you know, we discuss this rationally and or irrationally. <laughs> but, no, uh, you know, this is a really good thing. And, and Space 1999, 1999, first season, was really good. I highly recommend it. But yes. something happened with season two. Off to you. Yeah, now I'm actually throwing a couple of tidbits about the first season, and maybe this will give some hints. Yeah. I mentioned about Asimov earlier, or Asimov, as he started to pretentiously call himself towards the end of his life. <laughs> I knew a friend once that had a name that was clearly spelled a certain way, but they had to say it differently. Kind of like that annoying series there, uh, keeping up appearance. It's Florence Bucket. Oh, no, it's Bouquet. So Asimov there. <laughs> or Jack Palance. He said yeah. that scientifically, obviously, this is complete bullshit, which, okay, it is. Because any explosion capable of knocking the moon out of orbit would blow it apart. And if it did leave orbit, it would take thousands of years to reach the nearest star. All right, fine. So it's cheesy sci-fi. Fine, let's go with it. It works. Barry Morse did the one season, and he actually said, you know what, I want more money for this, I'm going to keep going. They said, forget it. He's like, you know what, I'd rather go play with the grown-ups again. (laughs) I'm done with this. (laughs) He actually said this. But the real thing was that the Italian money dried up. I don't know what happened, if it didn't go well enough, or if they just moved on to other things. Maybe the people in charge had changed, all these things happened with corporations. And all of a sudden, it's just British money. Okay, well, now we're stuck for a second season. Landau's making a stink. Apparently, it's been said a lot that they were asked to accept less money, including Lando and Bain, who were the only ones that had a name and said, well, fuck you. <laughs> you know, in year one, it was more intelligent sci-fi. There were kind of ideas being thrown around. Uh, that's Ooh. kind of the marker of intelligent sci-fi, or sci-fi period. It's ideas. You know, crazy ideas sometimes, but fascinating ideas that are sort of related to scientific facts and sort of go off somewhere else. They're futurists. You know, they're looking forward to hopefully a positive future. We can change the world. The hegemony of science, if you will, as a good thing, or potentially as a good thing. That's kind of the hallmarks of this. And yet they said, you know what, season two, let's throw some more action into it. Let's throw some younger people into it. Let's cheap out and, you know, pull the sets back and whatever else, get everybody to spend less. They actually mentioned that some of the themes in year one, kind of like Star Trek, especially when you get to Star Trek, the original movie, there's like metaphysical themes, and we're thinking about Eden and whatever else. There actually were episodes like this. Let's not do that. Let's just make it more family-friendly, you know, kind of let's add some humor because it's too serious. And, of course, you know, the original cast, those who remain, as few as they were, were like, these scripts kind of suck. Lando himself said, they changed it because a bunch of American minds got into the act, and they decided to do things they felt were commercial. It brought a much more mundane feeling to the series, which is true. Actually, a fellow who was involved with Star Trek towards the end, uh, Fred Freiberger was in this. Fred Freiberger, yeah. He'd filmed two episodes simultaneously, like just Franco. So therefore, because they were kind of spread thin with the big actors, they'd give the lesser people, the, the supporting actors, bigger roles, fill out the episodes. Lando didn't even want to do promos for the series anymore. He said it's embarrassing. It got to be that bad in that point. What they did was they brought in some new characters. And woof. Wow. Did you really miss Barry Morse? Did you really miss what happened in the first season? 
I actually watched this first series with my wife when we got to set, you know, several years back. Mm. And she was kind of agreeing with me. Okay, yeah, this is decent. You know, it's not really her thing, but she liked it. And we started one episode of season two, and both of us were like, our mouths dropped. Like, what the fuck? What's happened here? It's awful. They bring in, of all people, Catherine Schell, who's gorgeous. You know, she showed up in a lot of things. For one thing, she was in the Lazenby Bond, the Unimagined Secret Service, one of the many hot girls up there on the mountain. She was up in one of the Clouseau films, The Return of the Pink Panther. She was in things like The Persuaders, Supernatural. Probably a lot of people would know her best for the Douglas Adams, Doctor Who episode, City of Death, with Tom Baker and Lala Ward. And yet here, they put some makeup on her and make her all hairy like a monster she's supposed to be an alien Maya the science officer from another planet but a changeling right a changeling of sorts right Yes, and they do a lot of exploration into her race and character. I'm like, oh my god. There is this fella who is fucking obnoxious. Tony Anholt, who was actually the French, yes. quote-unquote, member of the Protectors. Remember that? Okay, obviously yeah. he's not. And now he's supposed to be Italian. Uh, Tony Bradeschi. Wow. And, of course, he's the action man running around getting into all these things. Like I mentioned, kind of like the red shirt without getting killed. But, yeah, I mean, it just... The entire tenor of the series, you do not recognize that it's gone from being, I don't want to say A-list, but pushing it, you know, B-plus list sci-fi, television sci-fi of the era, to being Z-grade crap. I, I, I do want to say, though, not the entire second season is a complete fucking waste, but close. <laughs> yeah, close. Uh, which which is why the series only ran two seasons, but no, there's there's some, I won't say gems, there are, there's certainly some episodes that are fun in there but really i think it's always sold as a box set you know if you guys watch the first season you would really enjoy it and if you go through the second season don't say we didn't tell you so but um it's not a total waste and i believe actually another thing that lando hart said to me also on youtube i'm plugging myself that they were gonna do a third season and then something happened yeah i heard that yeah yeah he said the it was pulled at the last moment but that interestingly enough would have made this 78 79 mm-hmm. according to him so this would have made them have a, a year two year gap and they were according to land out they were ready to go and then it was the ball was dropped. So, you know, what's to say of the aborted third season? I don't know. You know, would, would they have had more money? But now Jerry Anderson is gone. Is, is Sylvia gone, too? I think she's gone. Yeah, yeah, Sylvia's gone. So all we have left are technicians, and we know Barry Morris is gone. Is Barbara Bain still alive? I don't think so. If she is, she's really old and certainly retired and probably has no... Uh, I, I doubt she's going to show up at a convention, let's put it that way. Oh, so we're talking Beyond Gilf. Okay. Yeah, yeah, she's <laughs> up there at this point. Oh, <laughs> That's my belief. I wouldn't do her. She's in a wheelchair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. One of the things that we're going to hopefully do next season, I'm... Gilfs? No. No. Well, there's a series of movies that we'll be talking about, and we keep seeing old Hollywood people show up that used to be known for being gorgeous. Like, oh, look, here's the girl that, you know, from whatever. And they are now kind of in the, this is in the 60s now, and these are people from the 30s and 40s. And it's like, you don't even recognize them. Oh, you... It's kind of like we did Joe Don Baker, and that, who was in Golden Needles with him? And I was like, oh, my God, Gil Sondergaard, maybe? I was like, Gil Sondergaard, too, about Ida Lupino. Oh, what happened? Yeah, then that's... Well, you know, Ida Lupino is a really interesting figure too because she was gay 
and she wound up being one of the first female directors. Yeah, yes, like, she did. Yeah, yeah, this is certainly like an interesting thing. Yeah, we got to talk about this. So, the only thing I'll say about Space 1999, the, and it's like what saved the second season at all, is that young guys like myself and a friend of mine brought it up years ago when I mentioned the series. And this is before mm-hmm. we saw it again. So this is how long ago we're going back. He, first thing he said was, oh, yeah, Maya. You know, she gave me some weird feelings as a kid. So, <laughs> you know, they were basically selling it on Catherine Shell, as weird as she looked in all that makeup. Otherwise, there's nothing going for that second season. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I wasn't a huge fan of her. I never was. But, you know, it's not a total feel. Yeah. With that being said, so I guess we're going to segue back into the Mission Impossible back into the, the movies. movies. Okay, yeah. let's go. So uh, I don't have information on them in front of me because I wasn't sure if we would get this long to talk about it. We'd already kind of discussed 5 and 6 to some extent, but basically what happened is in the late 90s, mm. Tom Cruise, I don't know why, maybe you know the background, but he got the idea to revive. Okay, let's do an action series. Let's kind of make it somewhat Bondian, but updated, Americanized, and, you know, hey, I got this license from the old Mission Impossible series. <laughs> Why don't we, you know, throw that into it? And that's kind of how the ones that we had seen, because we didn't even get back to one, honestly. Okay, we worked okay. backwards, and that's that. That's how they felt to me. They felt like, all right, let's see what happens with this generic adventure series if we throw in some of the Mission Impossible tropes to it. And yet, later on, it becomes more and more right, more Bondy and more Mission Impossible-like. But what's your take, since you well, obviously were more familiar? So, around 95, 96, Tom Cruise gets hooked up with Steve Zalian, David Cope, Robert Town, everybody knows Robert Town, Giant Town. These are all big screenwriters, you know, some guys, Academy Award winners. And they're thinking, well, what franchise is out there that hasn't been tapped? So, gee, Mission Impossible. I think Spielberg was quartered, and then he kind of, like, backed down. So, of all people, Obama, who is probably, in my humble opinion, uh, one of the most... Oh, wait, wait, I'm thinking about this one. <laughs> one of the most... Say his name again, because it came out a little choppy. Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma, yes. Oh, you know, I kind of... All right. A lot of people hate him because he was so slavishly and openly copying Hitchcock. Yeah. But I like Body Double. I like some of his oh, early films. Oh, Blowout. Love. Blowout was great. Blowout I mean, is good. Know. The one with Inch. Dressed to Kill? Hey. Yes, Dressed to Kill. Some of Travolta's best films are right. I was going to say, this isn't when you finally knew, oh, look, Travolta can actually act. Everybody says Pulp Fiction. No, it was Blowout. Blowout? It was good it's, there. Uh, Dressed to Kill, Michael Caine fucking blows you away. Angie Dickinson. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, so Brian De Palma, who's making a career slavishly imitating of Hitchcock, and then yes. suddenly gets on a downside with... A couple of pictures that don't do so well for him, because he's still slavishly imitating Hitchcock, and tries to... At least he admits it, though. True, but he tries to push the envelope with a picture with Melanie Griffith that just totally bombs for him. And Craig <laughs> Watson, who, like, nobody like who? Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, I forgot what picture that was, but it was like, because De Palma, for years, was trying to make the first crossover porn movie. And the, yes, he was. Yes, that was kind of the idea of Dress to Kill, I think, even. Or Body the One yeah. to. And it didn't happen. And so, so he's scrambling. Didn't they actually call it in Italian? It was like Midnight Blue or something? Something like that. So, suddenly, they... Pulsations, that was it. Pulsations, that's correct. And so, like, oh, Brian De Palma's doing Mission Impossible already. This is interesting. And so, Cruz, who has power, he still has. No, he's got, like, Sean Reno. Oh, I love this guy. And Ving Rames, this was the first picture. Kristen Scott Thomas, who 
It was somebody. And nowadays, yes. he's nobody really anymore. But at that time, Jean Renault was a big freaking deal. Remember Wasabi and all that oh. stuff? I mean, he was he was a the name. professional. The professional. Yeah. Oh, yep. Oh, and there's that great movie with Jean Reno, the the Crimson Rivers, just an amazing picture. And he was with De Niro in that that movie uh, for John Frankenheimer. So anyway, so Vanessa Redgrave, John Voight, yeah, I know. So John Voight gets to be Jim Phelps <laughs> instead of bringing back the still alive at this time, Peters. And so so they create Ethan Hunt character for Tom Cruise, and they give him a team first time out. Uh, which included uh, lots of unusual people like uh, Emilio Estevez, who was somebody at the time, and uh, a couple of other people. Uh, Ving Rames was uh, Luther. Ving was never thin, so let's get that out of the back. Uh, <laughs> but he, yeah, how is it? And Emilio Estevez was a brat packer. So what do yeah, you yeah. Emilio's big claim to fame was doing that movie with his other brother about like being in jail or whatever the fuck that was. And Tom Cruise was still coming off cocktail on top gun. Yeah. So. So, this was a, a knockout out of the park. Some people claim it's the best Mission Impossible movie. I say by far, no. Because one of, one of the, there's a lot of people have faults with this movie. One of the things is, since we're looking at this movie in hindsight, the made Jim Phelps a villain and Christian Scott Thomas, who I already mentioned, and Emmanuel yeah. Beard, who was in other things, maybe some. They made her a big stink like the Belle Noiseuse. Yes, on. yes. You know, yeah, okay, we, yeah, she looks good naked, but and I liked her in Date with an Angel, which was ridiculous. Exactly. Okay, so we're now talking but, about these were just great European cast people, but the movie was well done. The action was good, but the, probably the best scene was when Cruz is lowered in this uh, government area, and he was supposed to, sort of like one of the best Italian heist pictures, and there's many of them. <laughs> Where he's lowered just above ground level. Grand Slam, Grand Slam thank you. That's my yeah, favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Grand Slam's a good one. That's a that's a that's a good analogy. The, but the lasers, you remember that scene? And so sure yeah, so Cruz is lowered just above the floor, all these lasers are going on, and they have to pull off this thing. Now the problem with this picture is Henry Suzerney, yeah, I know who. Well, <laughs> for like six months he was like a thing. And um, I'm not denigrating his abilities as an actor or whatever. He's apparently hasn't worked much. Maybe he's dead. So, <laughs> but Henry Cesarne is the uh, what we would say the uh, Alec Baldwin part, the the um, guy in charge ish. But anyway, it's it's a fun picture. It's it's light. It's nowhere does you do you have the Brian De Palma feeling. But it was a good first picture out of the bag but it took four years for a sequel mm-hmm. and to to <laughs> hey i give him credit for giving like the man who knows action to direct it john woo yes except that this has to be a picture like woo's other american films where yeah, i was gonna say it didn't feel john woo to me i was like eh. if you look at other woo films produced in america with american mm-hmm. production money they look diluted and I think a lot of... Do you remember the remake of, what was it, The Ticket to Thief or something? That was awful. Yeah. Or... With the white people in it? Blackjack, <laughs> the one he shot in Canada with Dolph. Or how about the ones... Uh, who was he working with? Jean-Claude Van Damme? Hard Talk. Uh, Hard Talk. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, it's a Van Damme film. It's okay, but... <laughs> no, I, I don't knock Van Damme. I actually like him quite a lot. 
I, I, I think our target was also a picture. I think people look at his, his cuts and they say, oh, we can't do this. So we, we have to edit it down. There are a lot of people who have problems with Mission Impossible 2. I liked it, but it's, it's a similar problem that happened with number one. We have, we have like Dugray Scott, who was really popular around this time period. He's our main villain. I mean, Richard Roxburgh, again, you know, Brendan Gleeson. Candy Newton, who's really had a resurgence for Westworld, the TV show. Yes. yes. I just laugh when you say Fanny Newton. I'm thinking of that frizzy hair sticking out to the side. She was really super <laughs> hot in this. And I don't care if there's a lot of doves flying around. I, I really like portions of Mission Impossible 2. There's mountain climbing, rock climbing, and there's a lot more of the... Actually, see, I don't know why people don't like this movie as much, because it's like a biochemical war thing going on. There's a lot more in this one film than in any of the other Mission Impossibles, where, to my knowledge, where there's the mask thing going on. There, there's like a ridiculous, not in a bad way, scene where like, Mask is pulled, it's this guy. Mask is pulled, it's this guy. Mask is pulled. Which is the heart of the, the, the original, original series. series. And it's a fuck, a mind fuck because it's like, yeah, yeah. John Wu is a great director. Uh, irregardless of what he, whatever he's doing today, whether it's financial, I, I, whatever the reasons why John Wu is making subpar films today, he's made brilliant films in his life. And he, that happened to all the Hong Kong crazed directors yeah. in the 90s. They did great shit over there until the minute they left once, you know, whoever it was handed over, I think it was England, handed it over to the Chinese. And everybody started running over here and expatriating. And ever since, nobody's done a goddamn thing. The best was, what's her name, Michelle Chung, I think it was, that did, it was the one that her husband, Oliver Sayas, Irma Vep, which is another... Irma Vep is That's a story yeah, in yeah. itself. It's a, actually a comment on... Um, what the hell's the name of it? Maggie Chung, I'm sorry. My wife just corrected me. <laughs> Maggie uh, Chung, yes. Did the yes. take on the Truffaut film, Day for Night. I actually did a class on that once, uh, long story, but comparing and contrasting the two films because they are mirror images. That was deliberate. But we'll talk about this sometime if you ever want to do that. But otherwise, nobody's really done anything. All those people that came over, big-name directors, they came over here and they're like, yeah. Well, yeah, but the, the biggest and best thing Wu has ever done in his life has been Face Off. Okay. Which is which which is an American film. I wouldn't think the best he's ever done in his life, but okay. <laughs> I know. I stand by that because I think Beyond the Killer and Beyond Hardball. Yeah, Hardball for sure. I think it's a tremendous movie, but that's another thing. Yeah. So, uh, so now... Where did you join up on this thing? You're up to three? Yeah, three because, three. yes, because we started watching this whole thing, and I don't remember if it was three or four, I'm pretty sure it was three, where they had the wedding with him and uh, Michelle Monaghan being kind of an albatross around his neck. I mean, okay, so right. fine, he finds this pretty girl, they get along, whatever. It felt a little too yuppified and soapy for me, but all right, no big deal, whatever. <laughs> you know, that was the thing then, Red Shoe Diaries, whatever the hell. But it's like, okay, the guy's a secret agent, he's risking his life all the time, and oh, we're going to threaten your wife, we're going to do this to your wife, we're going to do that to her. Oh, come on. And she's like hanging, uh, it just didn't work. It felt very Lois and Clark. It felt very Beauty and the Beast being that uh, horrible TV series with Linda Hamilton and the guy with the giant face there, Ron Perlman. <laughs> you know, it's got that kind of a yeah. 
jeez, oh, really soft soap kind of 90s, half feminist, half nonsensically over the top sensitive guy who's got to save the you know, tough girlfriend kind of a thing. Like, ah, oh, jeez. It just did not fucking work. And the fact that it didn't work not just for me, but it didn't work for my wife said a lot. I think that 4 was a lot better. 4 was a lot closer to what we're seeing in 5 at least. But, again, not as good. Well. <laughs> I actually... I I I actually like this one. Uh, yeah, I was seeing this before one and two. I actually seen this numerous times. I uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is not a guy I would go back to or rewatch a lot of his movies. Uh, I think he's fucking great as a villain in this. He's just so psychopathic and problematic role as the. Oh, the go-to in between guy to you that you go to to handle missions, and you know Maggie Q was in this, and she's gone. You know, so as far as that goes, and Larry Fishburne in this. So I think they were feeling around for this is directed by J. J. Abrams, yeah. I believe. And so I think they were feeling around. That's part of the problem right there. J. J. Abrams filmed it. <laughs> well, I don't think it's that bad. I, there's just some tremendous scenes in here. You now they're on the airplane. And, 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 you know, Cruz, who thinks he's pretty much, Ethan, who pretty much thinks he's invincible, which is a really, really good scene, where Philip Seymour Hoffman, who we don't think of in this particular role normally, is saying, I'm going to kill your wife, and then I'm going to kill you. It's like, you fucking believe that? This guy is so evil. Yeah, that's what I liked about this film, that in moments... In moments, collective moments, it doesn't equal to a great film, but there are such great collective moments about this film that wow, well, there are pieces that work. There's no question. It's like you've got a lot of set pieces. And toward the end, and toward the end, where wherever the fuck they are, was it Thailand or somebody? And he tracks him down, and he's running through to catch where she's gonna she's injected with something, right. and it's like shit, y'all. <laughs> He's got to really make it. Was that the one with the car park? Remember, he had a fight in that last car park, and they kept going down levels. Oh, I think that was five. No, four. Yeah, yeah. That was four. Which, that was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's 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 not as bad as I thought. And, and for Philip Seymour Hoffman, who knew, definitely worth checking out. Now the next one is certainly interesting because of all people, it's a guy who makes cartoons. <laughs> Whatever you got to say about this one, the guy who makes cartoons should make more live-action movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is actually what I would consider the start of yeah. the series. I mean, if, if for those who are into, okay, you just saw six, what should I do? Well, go back to five, and if you like that, go back to four, which kind of like we did. And that'll still work. I mean, we were okay with four. It definitely had moments like the one I mentioned with the car park. It was crazy. He's had this fight with the baddie there, and they just keep going off. It's, it's bizarre. It's like a freight elevator or something, but it, the whole thing is made out of glass. Every level, they just keep falling down one level to the next level, and cars are falling on their heads and everything else, and they got duck out of the way. It's insane. Yes, it's a cheap set piece. It's Hollywood, whatever. There's a lot of CG involved, but it's crazy. And it's definitely tension-inducing. I guess in the same sense of, but not as stupid as, what was the Martian movie that Schwarzenegger did that everybody loves? Oh, Total Recall. Yeah, Total Recall. Like, that kind of thing. It's like a roller coaster ride. And I think this was, I don't want to say it's the first one that's like that, but it definitely is the first one that feels akin to where the series is going to go afterwards. 
So, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I won't say it was great, but I certainly enjoyed this one. It was like, okay, this is kind of what I was expecting. And then we went back to three, and I'm like, what? <laughs> well, so, yeah, Brad Bird, who did The Incredibles, and after this, seven years later, did The Incredibles 2. Brad, go fucking make yeah. a movie. We don't want to see two <laughs> cartoons from you in, like, ten years. Which already disappeared off the face of the earth, apparently. But how am I to say it? Surprisingly. Takes a long time to make those gummy figures stand look right. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, I watched the first Incredibles movie, and I thought, hey, you know, after the fact, of course, hey, it's okay. But when I watched this, I had no idea what to expect. And, hey, Dubai, I know people who work in Dubai. Don't ask who. <laughs> it's always sandstorms. It's always like that. It's misty. There's, like, fucking crazy shit going on. They have the tallest buildings in the world. Nobody lives here. Don't ask. But... <laughs> also, you're not allowed to drink there. Don't ask. But you can. Boy. Don't ask. So, <laughs> remember, I know all. I am the all-speaking one. So, anyway. <laughs> no, no, people tell me, you can't drink here, Louis, but we all get together. So, shh. Anyway. So. <laughs> That's true. So. <laughs> I know too much. Anyway, so. This movie has, like, one of the greatest... Should I start singing K Sarah Sarah since you're the man who did too much? <laughs> K Sarah! No, anyway, this has one of the greatest <laughs> sandstorm scenes bar none. I mean, to me, I was like, oh shit! He's chasing a dude and it's like a huge sandstorm. I'm like, yeah, we've seen this before. Sansa Kalahari, whatever, back in the way in the day. This is yeah. a good sandstorm chasing. And Jeremy Renner, hey. The guy was great in the Hurt Locker. We're going to do our superhero show coming up. He's yeah. pretty decent in this. And we're starting to assemble a team again, which I like after one. You know, we, we kind of missed the team thing going on here. And this is, I think, Simon's first first appearance. And Paula Patton, who is in this, but then disappears after this picture. Yeah, uh, I don't know why. I don't know. Interesting movie, but, but, got to leave it to Tom Cruise and his fucking showstopper scenes. So, mid movie, well, we gotta, we gotta, we have to scale the sky, the world's tallest building in Dubai, in order to get some shit. And let's do it for real. And it's like, fuck, holy <laughs> shit. This man has something to prove. I mean, yeah, I make jokes about his Scientology thing. I make jokes about the never-ending rumors about his sexuality. But, you know, the guy has something to prove to himself in the world where he's out there. First off, he's freaking ageist. I don't understand that. And secondly, okay, we all know he's like a short guy and everything else. But he does this crazy fucking stuff. And there's no reason to. A star of his caliber should be sitting back there. Yeah, you guys go do it or whatever. Here, do the CG, whatever. No, he's out there and does insane shit. So he's clearly got something to prove to himself and everybody else. I'm impressed by that much. Yeah, it's not it's not a bad film. And and again, I started us off saying Brad Bird. <laughs> what a fucking name. Uh, hello, tweet. Uh, <laughs> please make another fucking real movie. Um, although probably second Incredibles play, man, like more money than we'll ever see in our lives. But still, this is not bad. Leading us to... Five, which is the first one I saw in the theaters. And, you know, again, it's Hollywood set pieces. You forget them after a while, but... This is the one I suggested to you. Yes, yes it yes, was. Right. 
very good, very intense thing. Now, again, you're talking about the same thing where it's like you got to get this piece and you go through this insane convoluted mission that's basically impossible. There, there's no way you could get around this. They figure out a way to do it that's very convoluted, very involves a lot of you know stages and a lot of infiltration and a lot of things you never thought that somebody could be able to do. Uh, even if you're talking about like government black ops kind of stuff, this is crazy. And then it's, oh, wait, but that's only part of it. Now you have to do this. And it just keeps going on and on and on. I remember that whole nonsense with the, uh, I, I think it was like radioactive uh, uranium or some shit, underwater. Mm. And the, they had to keep closing the locks. And, of course, he's down there pretty much drowning and trying to do this long after his air runs out and the place is all whatever. And it's supposed to go all... It, it just, there's a lot of crazy set pieces in there that just go on. And to some extent longer than they should. But... I did really enjoy this. I was very impressed by it, and it's kind of what made me, number one, go to this next one, and number two, go back and see what I felt about the earlier ones. And, you know, four had its moments. It definitely was not bad at all, but five was my entree into the series. That's all I can remember about it at this point. I'm sure you'll jog my memory with more details, though. So, Christopher McQuarrie, who actually wrote The Fucking Usual Suspects, which which everybody in humanity quotes to this day, you know, everybody has a weird guy they work with at work who they think he's the Kaiser Soze. Watch when he walks out of this building, he's going to do like that John Travolta shit, yell, dun, 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 dun. and he made a movie with the gun, which is very weird and very violent. And I'm not sure to this day how I feel about it. I've seen it a few times. And he worked on X-Men and he did Tom Cruise's well, if we can say, hey, everybody can make a mistake, Valkyrie, uh, <laughs> you know, about Nazis and Germans and stuff. But Jack Reacher was an interesting film. I actually sort of like that. So Macquarie somehow, with obviously the approval of Cruz, gets to direct a multi-huge million-dollar picture yeah. and the franchise. And Rogue Nation is it. And so they bring in... Rebecca Ferguson, I know who, but after this <laughs> movie, Rebecca was like, oh my god. And they brought back Simon Pegg and Ben yes. Rames and yep. Alec Baldwin, who, the world's best Trump imitator. <laughs> and and uh, no, it's a good film. It harkens back to it harkens back to things we grew up on. It's, it harkens back to the 60s, 70s, Euro spy things. Mm-hmm. It harkens back to what we liked best about spy movies, adding up the ante. And yet it doesn't feel Bondian yet. It doesn't feel... It's it's very much, like you said, it's more Eurospy. It's very Eurospy, but it doesn't feel Bondian. And this woman, who the fuck is she? Rebecca Ferguson. She's, know, she wasn't bad. I mean, it wasn't like this movie where it's like, oh, okay, this was pretty good, but... She good. has a very limited CV. I mean, I have no idea who she is. Where is she... <laughs> She's done limited work, believe it or not. So, yeah, but like she's like kind of less if I would do her. So, uh, <laughs> no, this is a really good, clever, interwining film. And it's been a long time since a woman in silk stockings has climbed this staircase. And we were like, oh, so <laughs> nice indeed. It's a good film, really good. And I, I think that leads us up to Fallout, where we kind of came in. And again, I, I really like this film. I really did think that they stepped up their game. 
Four was decent. Five was really good. This was, I hate to say it, I mean, it's Hollywood crap, basically, but it's it was great. I mean, it's for what it's trying to be, and especially for what it's probably not trying to do consciously, which is become the Bond series that we haven't seen for a decade plus. You know, it, it works. It's much better than anything Craig ever put out. So there are moments that, like I mentioned earlier, where it becomes a little bit Hollywood ridiculous and obvious. Like, all right, we knew he was going to be the villain from that scene, and you got to take this long to let it go, and now you're going to do one thing after another. Oh, wait, the hero can't get away with that. Oh, and what about this? And what if a safe drops on his head? And what if Wiley Coyote sets up TNT beneath his feet? And, you know, yeah, really? Come on. <laughs> but, you know, it does keep you entertained. It's amusing. But I will say that once we got to that whole scene towards the end, basically by the time he takes over the helicopter and, you know, trying to jump up and catch it and gets in the other one and whatever... I was just laughing out loud in the theater. It not like, oh wow, this is a great stunt. It was like, oh my god, I can't believe how bad these writers are. <laughs> so it tells you that much. But until then, and overall, it's a really good movie. I will take my hats off to them. It was pretty freaking amazing for the most part. And you know, I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you for saying that. I I I said this online somewhere, and I said to people in person that I think if they're fucking smart. This would give the people in the Bond camp pause to think, hey, we really got to up the ante on this. If it's going to be, in fact, the last Daniel Craig picture, well, look at this movie. We we don't have to top it because I don't think – and that's the thing. Can Seven, if there is a Seven, ever talk some of the shit in this? I think the motorcycle scene – okay, this is months later after this came out, folks – the motorcycle scene was lengthy, and then it had a bam moment, a blam moment. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. It's funny, because I saw this, and then I went back and watched Bullet again, because you were talking about Steve McQueen recently. Yeah. And I was like, what's the big deal about this? This scene is too short, and it's not doing that much for me. You know, the whole chase scene through Frisco, right. which was known for decades as being right. one of the most amazing chase scenes ever. But coming off of Mission Possible 6, I'm like, yeah, whatever. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It says a lot. Well, the, yeah, see, this motorcycle scene, also Great Escape, which is, you know, another like yes. uh, McQueen scene. And there's, there was... Chase scenes, God knows, you know, we've been watching movies for years, but this was, and it's interrupted, which was really cool, it was like, it's interrupted because we have to let this dialogue go on, the French, the hot French. The whole bit with the hot French cop, yeah. Yeah, hot French cop. It takes about ten minutes, basically, and yeah. then it goes back to the chase scene again. We're, we're going to track her down, and like, we're going to do a show on the hot French cop, and so... <laughs> And, you know, no dispersion on, uh, you know, Elsa Faust there, who's pretty freaking hot herself. And even Michelle Monaghan looked pretty good here, you know, fine. Yeah. But, you know, there, there was really nobody in the cast, like I had said originally, that was like, jeez, oh, except for... Uh, hot French Cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a whole show on the Hot French Cop of Mission Impossible 6. So, uh, anyway, no, no, seriously, seriously. That fucking motorcycle scene. So I'm following, I'm following, like, man, okay. Blam, he hits the fucking car. Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, okay, it's CG, but good Lord. That was crazy. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> the question remains, uh, did Tom throw himself on the fucking car? Maybe. <laughs> he probably, knows? He's nuts yeah, enough. he probably said to Christopher, hey, throw me over that car. Let's see if I live. 
<laughs> there, there's a lot of fucking holy shit, and and you get to see in this movie where he broke his fucking leg. <laughs> oh my god! So, and then the helicopter thing when they got you know, okay, it's ridiculous, but the guy's shooting this uh, it's it's like a Gatling gun, yeah. this gigantic yeah. ass machine gun, and him the whole time he's got no ammo, his his plane's falling apart, he's got no gas, the oil's leaking, he loses rotor blades, right? but somehow he still goes and smashes the damn thing into them, and they both go down, and they end up in this whole you know twenty five minute worth of every second we got to escalate it to something worse, going down the mountain avalanche thing and hit that detonator button, oh no, it's just out of reach, oh there it but, goes again, but, oh, but, but Superman <laughs> said. And this is his dialogue. <laughs> Superman says, he's not going to really fucking ram me, is he? Or he doesn't say fuck <laughs> he you. He doesn't but, say that. But he says, like, he's not going to ram me, is he? And nope. we're like, yeah. <laughs> what does it take? Why won't you die? Yes, he says that. <laughs> Why won't you die? Tom, and, and you know what? We didn't hear it, but I'm John Cruise, damn it. <laughs> and that's how we end tonight's show, folks. I'm Tom Cruise and you are not. So. <laughs> so thanks for joining us tonight we hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on the various Mission Impossible series filmic and televised as well as Space 1999 next time around we'll be talking superhero films of the basically they restarted in the 90s so from the 90s to present if you'd like to contact us here comments, suggestions or you're a filmmaker musician you'd like to join us on air drop us a line at our Facebook page facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1 or our website weirdscenes1.wordpress.com we're also on Twitter at Weird Scenes 1. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the wholly non-existent Big Papa Online Network on Block Talk Radio. So uh, anything else you want to close out? Yes, thank you all for listening. And we really enjoyed doing this show and we hope you listen to it and enjoy listening to it. We try to vary our subjects because there's a whole lot of stuff out there. Feedback is always welcome. And I hate when people show up to you like twice a year going, I listen to your show all the time. so cool. Well, contact us. Let us know, man, that you enjoy it, which you like to hear coming up. And although we're exhausting our uh, our well of ideas, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm sure there's more to come. So thank you so much.
Every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, the 
career and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. 